Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off? Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. 3D printing is the interesting one. They literally squeeze out the concrete, almost look like a big sort of printer. Does it speed up the process? Yes. Is it ready to be done at scale? No. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Today, we're doing this episode a little differently. As you might have noticed, there's been a lot of news recently on the housing market. Mortgage rates are going up in a time when homeownership is already out of reach for a lot of people, as homes have gotten more unaffordable. And so for this episode, we're turning the mic over to MarketWatch's Arti Swaminathan, who has looked into the current housing deficit in the United States. I'm a reporter focused on the U.S. housing market, and that usually involves spending a ton of time with economic data, from home sales to housing starts and listening to congressional hearings. And of course, staying updated with what the U.S. Federal Reserve might do next. You know, since interest rates have such a big impact on mortgage rates and by extension, the entire housing sector. But in recent months, the sector has really been constrained by an issue that's overshadowing everything else, the housing shortage. Well, feeling the squeeze of the housing market, sky-high mortgage rates, dwindling inventory, and sellers hoping to get more than their homes are worth. We've got a very large generation of millennial homebuyers that are at that peak household formation and home buying year. Katie Speets and Paul Cushman are desperate. Two years has gone by. Some families trying to buy a home worry that this could all represent the end of the American dream. Yeah, so the the actual estimate of the size of the housing deficit varies by group. We think it's about 1.5 million units. That's Robert Dietz. He's the chief economist of the National Association of Home Builders, which is a trade organization. In other words, Dietz represents the interest of home builders. Other places estimate that the housing shortage is even larger than that. Freddie Mac says we're short of 3.8 million homes, while the National Association of Realtors says 5 million or more. Either way, these are big numbers, which all underscore a key point. America needs more homes, but builders haven't been building enough. Last year, the U.S. only started construction on roughly 1 million single-family homes. That's 10% less than what we built in 2020. And that's also the first annual decline in over a decade. Before I jump into it, a small disclaimer. The housing shortage is not a simple topic. And as you might imagine, there's a lot of nuances, different viewpoints and interests at stake here. In this episode, we're focusing on the construction of new homes and some of the structural challenges at play here. And we talk to our guests about some new ideas that could help make it easier to build more housing. So I asked Robert Dietz about why we're seeing the shortage of housing construction in the first place. I think it basically comes down to some of the issues coming out of the Great Recession more than a decade ago, 
and really limiting factors on construction on the supply side. So we have kind of collectively referred to these as the five L's. The five L's Dietz references are these, labor, lending, lumber, lots, and law. The first one, labor, means getting people to build the houses. Lending, meaning getting more money for new construction. Lumber, referring to the stuff we build our houses with. Lots, the land to build the houses on. And the final L, law. That includes zoning and other rules that limit where and what you can build. I asked Dietz, which of these L's is the most pressing issue right now? It varies a little bit over the cycle. So if we were talking 18 months ago, I think most builders would say undoubtedly lumber and building materials. It was the supply chain. Now, the supply chains have improved. We've seen lumber prices come down. They remain elevated. In fact, overall construction costs are roughly 36% higher than they were back in 2020. But if we think about the kind of the top two medium term issues, and frankly, the ones that maybe we can work the most effectively to try to address, I think it's labor and then the, the legal and, and regulatory costs. So on the labor side, we're short several hundred thousand construction workers. This really does act as a ceiling of how many single family homes we can build a year. The latest data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that there are about 250,000 jobs open in the construction sector. That's partly tied to a slowdown in construction that began during the Great Recession back in 2008. That had implications for the recruiting and training of workers for the future. And then during the COVID-19 pandemic, workers were again laid off because of the construction industry shutting down. But that's not the only reason for the lack of workers. The labor shortage is something that's been much longer lasting and something that really needs to be addressed. That's Christopher Herbert, the managing director for Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies. And that was back in July of last year. Herbert is explaining to Congress some of the key reasons for the slow pace of home building in the U.S. And is there anything we can do to uh, expedite the availability of either supplies or labor? On the labor front, there's certainly ways in which we could do to support the, the workforce. There's a number of uh, ways to promote and provide training and to expand the pool of people who go into the construction field. Right now, it's overwhelmingly male, and we need to expand the, the range of people. More, we need more women on the job. Women make up only about a tenth of the jobs in the construction industry, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And Herbert had one more point. And certainly a key way in which the construction sector has met its need for labor going back 20 years. We built 2 million homes a year in the early 2000s, and a lot of that was through immigration. And so I think immigration reform that would allow us to expand the pool of workers would be another area we should look. One of the other major L's in the housing space is law. That refers to regulations on how buildings need to be constructed, as well as where and what type of homes can be built. Here's how Dietz, who represents the builders, sees it. On the legal and, and regulatory side, this spans the set of rules from state and local policies that don't work up to federal regulatory rules that just increase the cost of construction. When you put them all together, we've done some research estimates over the last 10 years on this issue, and we, we find that about a quarter of a typical newly built single-family home's purchase price is due to regulatory costs. Now, about half of those are arise during the land development stage, so they get embedded into the cost 
of the lot, that is the land, and then the other half arise during the construction stage. And it's not to say that those regulations don't offer some benefits, but we need to account for the cost of those rules in the same way that we account for building materials, the cost of the land, and the cost of the labor. I think policymakers have an open road in terms of trying to find ways to say what rules are not effective and are harming housing affordability. And I'll just give you one, for example, on the apartment development side. Every time you build an apartment building, you're required to build a certain amount of parking spots. That means that we're spending resources and and real estate basically developing housing for cars rather than housing for people. Parking requirements, of course, can be a legitimate concern. A lot of people need parking near their homes. But Deed says there's potential in reducing those parking requirements if we build housing near mass transit. So if you can take advantage of changes with on-demand transportation, build apartments uh, near mass transit, let's reduce those parking requirements. For single-family housing, less dense, it's things like green space requirements. Now, it's not to say the green spaces don't have value, but when you buy a plot of land and you say you can't build on a third of it, the cost of that land that can't be built in increases the cost of all those other homes you built. And the consequences of those rules is that it's been the lower end of the market, entry-level single-family housing, more affordable rental apartments that get squeezed out. And so when we're thinking about that deficit, it's particularly damaging to the housing demand prospects of particularly lower income households in the U.S. Dietz is pointing to an issue that's of massive national interest, which is zoning. It's a big topic from its history to what efforts have been made to change it, plus all the politics of it. But we won't be able to get to all of that in this episode. Some states have been moving towards easing zoning regulations. I've done stories on Minneapolis, for instance, which eliminated single-family zoning back in 2018. Prior to that, the city had set aside 70% of its residential land for single-family homes. The city also got rid of a rule that required developers to include parking spaces. Zoning, of course, isn't a black-and-white issue. Some locals find the increased traffic and noise associated with apartment living difficult to adjust to, especially if they've lived on a quiet street in a quiet neighborhood with just single-family homes for decades. Yet, without change, how do we build more housing for more people? We talked about a lot of L's which are limiting new construction in the near term. Of course, there's a lot more we could get into. For instance, when interest rates rise, it becomes more expensive for home builders to build because construction costs go up. That ultimately makes houses more expensive for buyers. At the same time, with buyers reluctant to buy right now, as mortgage rates are at or near 7%, developers are selling homes not to people who want to own, but to investors who end up renting out these homes. And the number of so-called build-to-rent homes has increased by 30% between 2019 and 2020. In other words, a substantial number of new housing units aren't even on the table for people to buy. When we're back, we're going to look at some new ideas that have come up to speed up the pace of construction. 3D printing homes and putting new homes right in people's backyards. That's after the break. 
Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off for the company, its investors, and for CEO Mark Zuckerberg? Over time, I hope that we are seen as a metaverse company. And I want to anchor our work and our identity on what we are building towards. Meta's trillion-dollar business and how we use the internet could hang in the balance. Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we talked about the housing deficit and looked at some of the challenges in building new housing. When I was researching for this episode, I couldn't help but think of this idea of the American dream of owning a home. I know that when I first came to the US, I moved to New York from Singapore and my mom envisioned me living in a single family home with a nice backyard. Not the apartment buildings reaching into the sky like we saw in Manhattan. I asked housing economist Robert Dietz, is this dream so embedded in us that it's standing in the way of more dense housing? Without a doubt, if you think about American dream and homeownership, they're they're entwined. In fact, I would go back to the origins of the country. One of the things that made the, the colonies before the American Revolution distinct from the European situation where many of them came from was the idea that they were small rural farm owners who owned land. They were all stakeholders in the republic. And that actually did set an important set of political and cultural preferences. So yes, the kind of the bias is a desire for single family land ownership. And I would argue that home ownership is a great way to build wealth. But some of the preferences are changing. So one of the things we've been watching is increase of demand of what we call light touch density, gentle density. So on the new construction side, this would include things like townhouse construction. So you can be looking at markets where you've got slightly smaller lot, a little bit smaller home. Builders can build more of those homes on those properties. And right now, the townhouse construction share is about 13% of the market. We do think it's going to grow to about 15 or 16% over the coming years. Now, what Dietz mentions here, gentle density, that's a pretty buzzy term. So when I say gentle density, I mean new housing units that aren't a massive densification of a current area. That's John Geary. He's the CEO of a startup called Abodu. So let's take a single family neighborhood, right? We all know what those look like. They exist in California. They exist in Oklahoma. They exist in New York. They exist in Florida. Typically, single family areas are very reluctant to building a large amount of multifamily housing, right? So a six story or a 60 story apartment building or condo building is really tough to get built in most single family areas. And that's because single family areas or areas that are zoned for single family developments are zoned for that lower density, right? So less amount of homes per acre. What's really interesting is these states, these metro areas still need more housing. However, the hardest part, particularly in areas like California, is where is this housing going to go 
what areas can support it and how can we increase our density for that amount of housing. Geary's company sells so-called ADUs, which stands for Accessory Dwelling Unit. They're also known as granny flats or backyard homes. And put simply, an ADU is a smaller house placed usually in the backyard or elsewhere on the property of an existing home. And Geary's company, Abodu, specializes in making standardized ADUs. I asked Geary, who lives in an ADU? I think the really interesting perspective to look at this through is when a homeowner is making the decision to build an ADU on their property, there's typically two core use cases that they have in mind. One is loved ones or family members. So that can be parents-in-law. That can be aunt, uncle that that needs housing. That could be a child uh, that's struggling to afford rent in the local metro area that they live in. The company also envisions homeowners renting out their ADUs to add another source of income. So the reason ADUs provide this gentle density is because we're not changing the fabric of these neighborhoods. We're not putting a six-story apartment building in a single-family community. What's happening is homeowners are building one-story, 500-square-foot, one-bed, one-bathroom homes in their backyards that don't even notice within the community, right? You can't see it from the street. Uh, It doesn't feel like there's all this construction going on nonstop. And so that's why we use the word gentle density. It's adding homes in these areas that need homes, right? Single family neighborhoods are often very close to, to top jobs, are often very close in convenience to, to family and friends and loved ones, but haven't seen new development in decades. In recent years, California has passed a series of laws enabling ADUs. Permits rose from about 1,200 in 2016 to nearly 20,000 in 2021. And several other states have also legalized ADUs or are considering legalization. Gary said that the regulatory framework has simplified the process of building the ADUs. If you're building a structure that is under 800 square feet, that is under 16 feet tall, and that is more than four feet from your rear property line and your side property line, you have the legal right to build. There's no planning review. There's no neighborhood comment period. There's no design review portions that typically constrain the development of single family and multifamily properties. It's simply, do you check these boxes? And if so, then you get to build. ADUs aren't the only idea designed to ease the affordability crisis and speed up construction. Here's Robert Dietz again. If we're thinking about ways to increase productivity, increase ways to bend the supply cost curve in the right direction, offsite construction may be one of those methods. So, so offsite is, is modular and panelized construction where you're building either most of the house or in some cases the entire house in a factory. Um, now, it's a small market share. It's about 2 to 3% of single-family starts. And in fact, in the late 90s, it was 7 to 8%. So just getting back to where it was a few decades ago would offer some opportunities. These types of houses might be built differently, but they look and feel exactly the same as other traditional homes. They look just as beautiful as any kind of frame home. It's just that you're using manufacturing workers rather than uh, construction framers uh, to do that, that kind of construction. Dietz also mentions 3D printing houses. 3D printing is the interesting one. It, they, they literally squeeze out the concrete almost with like a big sort of printer. 3D printing homes means that a printer pours layer upon layer of cement to construct the foundation of a home. 
And unlike modular homes, which are pre-built off of the construction site and then assembled together like a piece of furniture from IKEA, 3D printers work on the site itself. This type of 3D printing of homes isn't happening nationwide just yet, but there is one project going on right now in Austin, Texas that I find fascinating. In a major new housing development, 100 homes are being built using 3D printer robots on site. This construction project is a partnership between a major home builder, Nanar, and 3D printing startup Icon. In an interview, the CEO of Icon told CNBC that the on-site printers are almost fully automated, meaning that they only require three workers to operate them at each home. He also said that the decreased need for labor significantly cuts costs. But while all of this sounds really cool, Dietz points out that it's still a new technology. Does it speed up the process? Yes. Is it ready to be done at scale? No. The big challenges there really are, you know, the geographic spread of the industry. If we were building lots of homes in the suburbs of one big city that dominated the country, it would be a lot easier to recoup those economies of scale. But because the United States is so spread out, getting the economies of scale necessary for those forms of construction is really quite tough to do. There's a real opportunity here to gather some economies of scale on the manufacturing side and increase the, the productivity of the sector. And of course, anything that would bring down the cost of construction is going to be good for housing affordability. Deed says there's also potential in turning existing buildings into new homes. So there's a lot of excitement about turning vacant office buildings into residential. That's a lot harder than it sounds. Every office doesn't need windows in the same way that an apartment does. But if we think about old shopping malls that have failed, kind of low-rise retail facilities with the rise of, of delivery to home and things like that, that kind of property can be torn down and replaced by much needed housing. Particularly if you think about a shopping mall. Near transit, the way it's oriented, you can do kind of light touch density with townhouses, low rise apartment buildings, some retail that's walkable, grocery stores, libraries, and things like that. I think that kind of conversion within the inner suburbs is really a way that we're gonna see some innovation when it comes to housing supply. So from backyard homes to converting unused commercial real estate, there's a lot of new ideas that aim to address this issue of the housing shortage. Innovation in constructing these homes faster, more efficiently, and ultimately cheaper could do a lot in making home ownership available for more people. But as we've talked about in this episode, there are some pretty big structural challenges at play here, like where to build these homes and how to find workers for it all and those aren't solved very easily. Here's Robert Dietz again. I think we're gonna see a lot of this play out over the next five to 10 years because we have a significant structural housing deficit. The labor shortage means that we need to find new ways of building homes faster and at lower cost. And there's the demographics are really there. The demand is there, particularly if you think about the millennials moving from their mid to late 30s into their 40s, that demand for single family homes is gonna grow and grow and grow. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney@marketwatch.com. at marketwatch.com.
Thanks to Arti Swaminathan, who hosted this episode. And thanks to Robert Dietz, Selma Hepp, and John Gary. For more news on the housing market, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Katie Ferguson, and Meta Lutzhoft, who also mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Mark DeCambry was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.